0: We will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, guys, it's Dr. Rick here, and another Amazing episode coming to you as I had the distinct honor of interviewing Mark Guber who talks a bunch of science and talking about consciousness and where does it really reside from in life and quantum physics and we went through it all now, if you've been an avid listener of my podcast, these are concepts that I've been bringing up to the table throughout the time since I've started this podcast. And he brings this science and shares a ton of different things to really hone in and really shift the gears to help unlock human potential to allow us to um, really accelerate. And this was an awesome podcast. I was very happy to be on it. Um, Mark talks, he has a book that came out called An End to Upside-Down Thinking, and I highly recommend it. He puts a ton of his science in there, and he uses uh, from research from uh, two-time Nobel Peace Prize uh, nominee Dr. Irvin Laszlo, and also Pixar founder and two-time Academy Award winner Lauren Carpenter. And also adds in the chief scientist at Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dr. Dean Radin. Talks about Dr. Ed Kelly and also Larry Doser, MD, in his book. He dives into a lot of this content, and uh, it was a great thing because I come from... Although I am very scientific based, uh, my background is a lot into energy medicine and spiritual concepts and things that have been taught about for four or five thousand years uh, that our ancestors, uh, older, um, older civilizations knew about. And it's just cool how science is catching up. So we really dive into a lot of that. I promise you this is a good one to tap into. It is going to be a lot of science for those who are just starting to get into that. Um, get ready. You may have to listen to us a few times. Um, but I promise you it's going to be one of those podcasts that are just going to mind blow you away and you're going to come out of this like, holy cow. And the whole goal is is to drastically see life in a different way than what you have and just understand that this is kind of the movement of where it's going. And I just love having a pioneer like Mark come out and with his work and his research and everything he's doing and all the time he's spending on this stuff, um, really being one of the pioneers to make this change, to shift gears and really use science to prove people, hey, this is what's happening. you know. And in his whole goal of the book is dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. And so with no further ado, uh, I'm excited to get this, pie, this episode going to you. So be ready, sit back, relax, and just truly embrace and enjoy the science as I get the opportunity to bring to you Mark Guber. Well, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, when I, I I looked you up and looked all your info, man, I got like really excited of all the stuff you're doing because this is like all interest points for me. So this is gonna be like a kid in a candy store for me just to just to share and be straightforward here. <laughs> well, are, these are my favorite topics. So I'm excited. I love it. So you know, your diverse background we got into and all that I mean, like, how, you know, first off, starting off, what's your like your your professional your educational background because I want to start there. And we'll walk through as we go through all this.
1: Sure. So I I work in Silicon Valley. I'm a partner at a firm called Sherpa Technology Group. And we advise uh, technology companies on their business strategy uh, and on mergers and acquisitions. I've been doing that for over eight years now. Prior to Sherpa, I was at UBS, a large global investment bank. And I was there during the financial crisis, actually. July of 2008 was my first day of work. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) <laughs> so I did that until 2010. And prior to working in investment banking in New York, I, I was a student at Princeton University where I was captain of the tennis team. So between you know, when I talk, tell people about my background, it's been very business-focused and athletically focused. And meanwhile, I have a book on consciousness. So people usually ask the question of what's the connection there. That was going to be my next question. How did you go from that and
0: then totally shift over the consciousness?
1: Yeah, um, it wasn't. It wasn't a planned thing. Let's put it that way.
0: <laughs> I can relate. I can totally relate to that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. Uh, it started with podcasts. That's the short answer. I was listening to uh, business podcasts at first, and then health podcasts, and then a woman came on one of the health podcasts. Her name's Laura Powers. This was August, August, 2016. And she started talking about psychic abilities and how she talks to dead people and works with energies. And, uh, she said that as a child she used to see things, but then kind of shut it out of her life and her life didn't go in a great direction. And then when she let the things back in, her life got a lot better. And now professionally she works with clients and and I just never even heard of these things before in any serious way beyond maybe science fiction movies. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, it didn't really change my life or anything, but it was interesting to hear someone talk about these things. And, and she didn't sound like she was trying to make it up. And I remembered at the end of that podcast, she said, well, I have my own podcast and it's called healing powers where I interview other people who have very similar experiences. So I said, Hmm, that's kind of interesting because I'm looking for a new podcast to listen to. And I have a long drive because I, I live in San Francisco, but our office is down in the peninsula in the San Mateo area, so that's a long drive on the 101. So I was like, okay, let me just turn that one on and see if it's interesting. So I, I turned her podcast on and just kind of let it play for a few weeks while I was driving to and from the office. And at first, I wasn't. I was. I it didn't really register that so many people were saying similar things about their personal experiences. But then after a while, I got really interested because I'm, I, I it registered. Wait a second. These people are all saying very similar things about their experiences and they're not related to each other and they all sound like they're pretty genuine. So unless they're having pretty serious delusions or hallucinations about something, maybe something's going on. And it led me down the path of just personal research where I started to actually look at the science behind this, which I'm sure we'll discuss today. I saw things from the U.S. government, from Princeton University, from the University of Virginia, and lots of very credible research that has been done for decades And then I got super interested um, and and realized that something was up. And I, I would combine that with the fact that I started to, you know, I said, well, if this research is real and if these people on the podcast can actually do extraordinary things, then I should be able to have sessions with people and they should be able to also sometimes do extraordinary things. And sure enough, when I had sessions with different energy workers and psychics that didn't know anything about me and they were over the phone, some of them knew things that they just could not have known. It wasn't all the time, but it was like, okay, this is lining up with the research. And in, in short, it really flipped my worldview because I had to s- suddenly reconcile all of this new information with, my old, with, with what I used to think was real and I couldn't do it. So I ended up researching for a year straight of just very heavy stuff. And my friends remember, I kind of went into a cave where there were just books all over my apartment. And prior to that, I wasn't really doing much reading. Um, and and it, it just became just a personal passion. And I was never planning on writing a book, actually, in in that process. It was just out of personal interest to understand what reality is under this alternative paradigm and decided that I should just put it on paper. And this was in the summer of 2017. And part of what prompted me to do that was a number of friends told me that what I was conveying to them had a big impact on how they thought about life. The notion of the idea that consciousness doesn't die when the body dies. That's a big one for people who might fear death, for example. And I was talking about evidence suggesting that's true. So people were, were very interested. And I said, okay, why don't I just try to write something? And I sat down over the 4th of July weekend in July 2017 and ended up writing more than half the book that weekend. And then over the next over the next few weekends, I just finished it up because I had the structure in place and just kind of had it all in my head. And then so I came out of July 2017 with a book, and that's the book that just came out in October. Awesome. I
0: love it. And we're gonna definitely dive into the book. I wanted to so was what well, was it the the research that you spent a year in, or was it your experience? Like, was there something that just like said, okay, this is not bullshit. I, I'm totally sold. And now I got to dive in and do all this research. Or was it just over time with the research and all that, you kind of were just like, yeah, there's something to this.
1: It was more of a gradual process. I mean, I've I've heard a lot of people who have a single mystical experience and it changes their whole life. Like they have a near-death experience and then they were one thing one day and then another thing the next. For me, it was much more gradual where I would hear something and it would be like two steps forward in that direction. And then I would go about my daily life and kind of forget about it because we're so biased by what our eyes can show us. And yeah. then I would listen to another podcast and I would go a few more steps forward and then go back. And it was like this back and forth for a while. Eventually, I got so far forward with the, the evidence that I saw that I, I literally could not reconcile my old worldview with that new evidence.
0: I love it and I, I'm asking just because that's like kind of like my personal journey has been uh, my backgrounds in energy medicine so I've studied energy medicine I've seen bizarre things happen where people have you know a, a grapefruit tumor in them and four days later it's gone and it's like how the hell that happened and uh, and we can we'll chat about that a little later um, on that part but it was those type of experiences where um, like you said you have, you go talk to someone they're sharing information that they can impossibly not know. Yeah. Cool stuff. I love it. But let's go ahead. So, you know, talking about the book. So let's just dive a little bit into that. What's, you know, we're talking about psychic abilities, uh, afterlife consciousness doesn't die. Is that kind of what the book's about or is it a little deeper?
1: It touches on those things, but I think maybe we should start with the fundamental premise because that will, that it, it makes possible. A lot of these things that sound totally crazy, Let's do it. What, what I, The way I, I now frame things after having done the research, I certainly didn't start looking at it this way, but it, it, everything centers around the question of consciousness. And when I say consciousness, I mean, like right now I'm speaking to you. I have an awareness. I have a personal sense of identity. It's like my subjective inner experience. It's something that's always been there. It's like my mind, but I, I can't touch it. It's not this physical physical thing. I can't really put my finger on what it is, but we all have it. So the question is, how does that get there? And what I would have said to you two plus years ago is, well, don't we already know the answer to that? Why are you asking me? Don't, don't we know that chemical activity in our brain creates that conscious experience? What I didn't realize until I got into the research is that number one, there's a major question about this. And science magazine actually calls it the number two question that remains in all of science. As they put it, what is the biological basis of consciousness? In other words, how does our body, our physical biology, like I can touch my leg, I can touch my arm, I can touch my head. If you ask me to touch my mind, I can't do it. And this is the question. How does this physical body that is touchable produce a non-physical consciousness? The open secret is that we do not know the answer to this question. So that alone is a really big deal because I mean we can send people to the moon and there's tons of scientific advancements all the time. And yet our very own awareness and consciousness is still a big mystery. So that's important, number one. Where I tend to take things is, based on this, this evidence we'll be discussing, is the reason we haven't figured out the answer to the question of what is the biological basis of consciousness is that there is no biological basis of consciousness in the first place. In other words, our consciousness, our awareness is not a product of our brain or of our body but rather our brain is more like an antenna receiver or more precisely like a filtering mechanism that is processing a consciousness that is not from the body itself. And that explains why we see such a close relationship between the brain and consciousness. Like if someone gets in a car accident and then they have impaired memory, or you stimulate a part of the brain that's responsible for vision, and all of a sudden the person sees differently. We see a strong correlation between what happens in our brain and the type of experience we have. The potential error that we might be making, and I think the history books may look back at this and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe they thought this way. They made such a big error that's obvious, is that we're making an assumption in in traditional science that because there's this very strong relationship between what we do to the brain and what happens to our conscious experience, we're assuming that the brain must then produce the conscious experience when there's an alternative possibility, which is that like the brain is a processor. And just very quickly, there's, there's an important analogy here. And in statistics, people call it correlation is not causation. Yep. The, the example that I like is from Dr. Bernardo Castro, a philosopher who's looked at this problem too, who says that, you know, imagine you have a fire that shows up. And in, in Bay Area, we actually have some fires right now. Yep. Uh, firefighters show up. You have a bigger fire, more firefighters show up. There's a really strong correlation between how big the fire is and how many firefighters are showing up. Now, in this situation with fires and firefighters, do we conclude that the firefighters were the cause of the fire? I love it. No, we don't. Of course not. We don't, but there's a strong correlation. So, this might be the error that we're making with consciousness is to say, oh, there's such a strong correlation. Like all these things that are happening to the brain are, are we can see the, the exact change in the consciousness well that doesn't tell us that the brain produces it so it's a it's a really big if your listeners take one thing away from this interview it's i think to acknowledge number one that there is a huge open question about consciousness and how it's produced and that there is a potential alternative which treats the brain as a processor of consciousness
0: have you ever heard of the girl who basically didn't have a brain and she can function had memories and all that stuff
1: I have heard stories of this where people have, they have, they get in an accident. So their brain is scanned and it, it turns out they have very little brain mass and yet they're have a normal IQ. Yeah.
0: And so that was one of the things that like baffled. Uh, this is, I forgot how, I think I was in school 10 years ago, almost now, um, where they came up with that and they were talking about it. Cause one of the guys, uh, the teachers I was talking to was big into energy medicine and consciousness and all that. And he's like, We think it's in the brain, but it's not. That's the flaw that I love how you brought up. Because if it is biological, if it was, you can bring back dead people. You just have to figure out the biological pathway. Go ahead. Boom. Here they come. They come back to life. Um, But obviously, there's something deeper to
1: that. Yeah, I agree with you. and You raised a really important point here, which is... A pattern that is seen throughout science that I think is easy to sweep under the rug, which is that there are a number of instances of reduced brain functioning, or in some cases actually reduced brain mass, and yet there is kind of an enriched conscious experience. And there are a few examples to point to because it matches with the idea that our brain is like a filter, where when our brain is actually less active, we are exposing ourselves to the broader reality that's always been there, but which our brain is typically filtering out of our perception.
0: I love that. And it's kind kind of like, and I think I'm grasping here what you're talking about is like um, that everything always, it, it filters things and everything always exists. It's just what you're filtering,
1: what's filtering through, right? Exactly. Exactly. So it's a new way to think about our brain and our body is that it is the lens through which consciousness is having the experience. And
0: it's like in, in the studies I've done, it's like, they always say like, imagine like earth, we have computers, we got technology. Now we have all this, it always exists existed we just had to shift gears shift allow more information to come in and then all of a sudden we can create that but it's always been here
1: exactly right exactly, exactly. And, yeah. yep and, but it's difficult for many people to wrap their heads around this and i think i'm one of those people because i haven't maybe had those experiences where i've exper- personally s- seen the broader reality that at least i can remember and it, for people who haven't experienced it firsthand it can be difficult
0: totally have you ever heard about you know when it comes to consciousness have you ever studied or looked into how it binds into the body how does that how does that merge and give life to the body at all
1: it's a question that i I do talk about in the book and it's one that i think is not well answered but until until we appreciate that the brain is not the producer of consciousness people won't be looking at that question
0: true i totally agree with you there um yeah, this is cool stuff. Um, so you, you talk about that in the book. What else do we got going on?
1: Okay, I want to go back to this point that we were talking about of reduced brain functioning and heightened yeah. conscious experience because that, again, it matches the pattern of the brain being like a filter. So one area is psychedelic research, mm-hmm. which has kind of just restarted in the last few years because there was a, like, it was, there was a ban on looking at it clinically. Yep. But yep. there was a study in 2012, for example, on psilocybin, which is the active hallucinogen in magic mushrooms and what the researchers found when they did brain scans was that when people were tripping on the hallucinogen they actually had reduced functioning in parts of their brain so it, again we have a rich enriched experience that feels like you know a hyperreal trip and it's correlated with less brain activity so that's one example Another is the near-death experience, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail later. But these are cases where people have, they're in cardiac arrest, for example, where they have no, their heart's off, they're clinically dead, there's no blood flowing to their brain or they're just very they have severe physiological trauma in some other way and yet they're having this enriched experience where it's realer than real and they're seeing things that happen in the room when they hover over their body but they're verified as being accurate these are cases where we have a reduction in brain activity or sometimes no brain activity and yet an enriched consciousness it all matches with the idea of a of you know the brain as a filter
0: yeah. No, totally. I uh, I guess we will dive into near-death experiences. That was a big passion for mine. Because um, you're talking about like psychedelics. And I, I wrote this in my book. I uh, I tested out... Well, I tested. I felt like I had to do ayahuasca for some reason. And couldn't explain why. Didn't know why. It was just a calling. The universe kept showing me things. And it just kept showing up in my reality. And I was like, all right, this is maybe something I need to do. Went through it. Long story short, it put me on a path that I was like, I needed to know what happens after we die. I I was just so, because I died during that experience. It was not literally, um, it was uh, what it taught, it showed me what death was because I had a huge fear of death. And after I came out, I was like, I need to, I just had this burning desire to know what's the afterlife, what's the spirit world, where do we come from, who are we, what are we really all about? And one of the big things I loved researching because there's so much data on this, and I know you know this already, near death experiences. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I was looking up, um, when I looked at, I was looking at some of this stuff is like a woman and you were just talking about, you know, hovering over a body and being accurate details. Um, how this one lady, after I think it was a car accident. She died on the, there. They, they were trying to recitate her back and long story short, she was able to get back, come back to life. And, but she was, she talks about her whole experience. I'm going to keep that short. But, um, It was like after six months, it took her to recover. She knew it. She wanted to go back. She knew who the doctor was that did the surgery. She knew what room she was in. She knew everything, even though she was clinically dead. And she wanted to come back and she came back and wanted to thank the doctor and said, you're the one that did the surgery on me. I watched what you do. I knew what you were thinking. I felt that, you know, you, I was, um, your confidence." And she just went through this whole story. And I was just like, holy <laughs> shit. Excuse my French. Uh, but I was like, this is cool. Um, so near death, let's talk about it.
1: Yeah, this is a big one. And I have a whole chapter on it in my book, and End to Upside Down Thinking, because it's, I think it, it might actually give us hints into the broader reality if we view the consciousness as not being tied to the brain, if we view these experiences as not being just hallucinations. Mm-hmm. So again, if, if we view consciousness as not being a product of the brain, then what that model predicts is that when the body dies, our consciousness doesn't die. Just, just as a, that's like just kind of definitional. If oh, yeah. consciousness doesn't come from the body, then you're, you're, it's not dependent on the body. So these things would, would, be, would in theory, be possible. So yes. what, is the, what is the near-death experience? This is something that has been reported for a long time. So Plato talked about it, the Tibetan book of the dead, the Egyptian book of the dead, but it was only really in the last few decades where it became kind of a household name thing. And it's largely because of, I think, two things. Number one, resuscitation technology, bringing people back from severe physiological uh, ailments has gotten better. So if you're in cardiac arrest, we can bring you back now. So people, there's more of an opportunity for people to talk about their experiences. And also Dr. Raymond Moody in 1975 wrote a book, on near-death experiences, and that he actually coined the term. So now there are a lot more people looking at this, and there are many millions of people that have had variations of the experience. But it's while they are in this state of severe impairment that they talk about Uh, like different steps and not everyone has all of the steps, but many of them are typically reported where the person talks about like a feeling of unconditional love and hovering over their body and seeing things in the room. Sometimes it's accurate what they're like seeing specific things in the room from a vantage point above their body that are shown to be accurate. They talk about seeing deceased loved ones sometimes or mystical beings as they call them. And then they also talk about a life review, which to me is one of the most important findings that throughout all of my research yeah. where people are reviewing their own own life and they're judging themselves for how they were treating people as they're seeing all the events that happened. In some cases, they experience those events through the eyes of the people that they affected. And they feel the pain that they inflicted on that person. And they're like, they come back in their body after the experience and their lives are changed because they realize that their life is not about material gains rather it's more about how they treat people so many people after the near-death experience often get divorced or they change their job and they're just their priorities shift drastically
0: yeah that is that is uh that's so true and i love the, the the life review why do you think it's important to have a, a life review besides just seeing how you treat people is this a big question.
1: I mean, what is, why does the life review happen in the first place? It gets the questions about whether life has meaning or not. And maybe part of the meaning of being here is about treating each other well, because we're interconnected as part of the same consciousness, even though it seems like we're fundamentally separate.
0: I love that. And, uh, it, it, do you, when you say we're all connected, is that like unified field stuff?
1: Yeah, there are different terms for it, and that's the, it's kind of the ultimate conclusion I get to in the book, which is that just the current paradigm in science says that the brain produces consciousness, or more generally, matter produces consciousness, because the brain's made of matter. So you yep. started with a material universe, it led to the evolution of a human that had a brain, and then consciousness came out. What I and many others are arguing is that, no, consciousness actually comes first, consciousness yep. is primary, and we are all part of, connected as part of the same uh, underlying consciousness, even though we have this kind of diverse experience through different uh, body lenses, so to speak
0: do you, in your book do you bring up any things on like quantum physics principles and stuff like that that have kind yes. of been helping prove um, like some of the things that show everything comes from thought or non form to form kind of thing
1: Yes, yeah, so chapter three is all about quantum physics, and I think we should talk about a few of those phenomena because it's important to understand that the underpinnings of our reality by proven science point in this direction. And in fact, Max Planck, who's a Nobel prize winner in 1931, one of the, he's one of the pioneers of quantum physics. Mm -hmm. He said, after looking at the findings, I regard consciousness as fundamental and I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. That's what he said. And that's (laughs) exactly what you and I are talking about.
0: Oh yeah. And so what, what
1: studies or what stuff do you
0: have in the book or that you, you've shared that, uh, um, help kind of support these principles?
1: Okay. I think there are two things we should talk about. One is it is called entanglement and the other one is called the observer effect. Love it. Keep going. Okay, so, <laughs> and this is important to know because I, it's, it's proven stuff. It's been around for about a hundred years. And yet in our everyday experience, we don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We don't see it. So true. Entanglement and Albert Einstein looked at this and he called it spooky action at a distance and he tried to disprove it because it was so mind blowing to him. This is what it says is that I'm um, simplifying this drastically. You have two physical particles, okay, like things that you can touch, like an atom or something, something physical. One is here, one is far away, not physically next to each other. When you spin or affect one particle, the other one is instantaneously affected in a correlated way, like mirrors the other one, but at the same instant, as if there was nothing traveling between them, as if there's a connection. Yep. Okay. So this is why Einstein didn't like it because Einstein thought that the speed of light was the fastest that anything could travel. And yet here we have an instantaneous or a simultaneous reaction. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. But this is now, so Einstein tried to disprove it when he, when he found out about it and actually in the, in the process of trying to disprove it, he further proved that it's a real thing. And now in science, entanglement is a common It is generally accepted as being real. So this gets to the point potentially of some kind of interconnectedness, maybe even at the level of consciousness that we are not seeing with our eyes. And in fact, there's a a great book by Dr. Dean Radin, who studied many of these things. It's called Entangled Minds, where he looks at psychic phenomena and ties it to quantum properties.
0: I love it. Yeah. I mean... um... Yeah, quantum entanglement is, uh, it, you know, we're all interconnected in some shape or form. And uh, when I talk about healing for people, I bring that up a lot because I always tell people that no matter what you do in your life at this time, and there's been so many studies on this, that you can actually change the history of your ancestry and your lineage by breaking that pattern. So when you heal, you're healing everyone from before and you're changing the course of the future because of quantum entanglement.
1: Yes, I've heard about this and there are things like <clears throat> excuse me, like family constellation work that gets into this kind of a thing of working with uh yeah, ancestral issues but at a non-physical level and people talk about how you can affect a lot from that.
0: Yeah, there was a study done um you ever hear Dr. Joe Dispenza? Yes, phenomenal dude. Uh and he uh in one of his books he talks about um, the science of when there was uh, 3,000 some odd people who um, had this infection in a hospital and he did this prayer and they were talking about the power of prayer and all this stuff. And I'll I'll, be, I'll keep it short, but long story short, they ended up uh, as they were praying in 2000 for this, the, the, the guy who uh, was, when he was in the book, he's like, is it just a coincidence that 3,400 some odd people in one hospital had an infection or was it something else? And what they were trying to prove was quantum entanglement and and what they did was is they were praying for people from the years of nineteen ninety-four to nineteen ninety six in two thousand. And when they did the prayers, what they found out is the people who are still alive, there were some that passed away from the infection, but the ones who were still alive, their lives improved immensely when they were praying and thinking about them back in 1994 and 1996. And so I'm kind of maybe butchering this research here a little bit because I'm trying to be quick with it. But it's, uh, uh, again, are we really in a, we're in a linear space-time, but is it really um, just in this reality or can we affect things without time?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's actually where I do take things in the book, which is this idea that not only is consciousness fundamental, but it is beyond all space and time. So that these effects that you just described, which is basically a, a, the effect of intention at a non-local time, mm-hmm. yep. simply <laughs> is having it, it's, non-local, it's non-local physically and non-local temporally oh, yeah. and be an effect. And that is what my, a lot of the research in my book is talking about is, is non-locality.
0: I love it. And so we talked a little bit about quantum entanglement. Let's talk
1: about the observer effect. So yeah, what's listen, that? How does that work? It's such an important one, and it's really mind blowing. It's like the the some people I think have called it the skeleton in the closet for physicists because it's like it's the big mystery. And I will simplify this drastically. There, there's a, an experiment called the double double slit laser experiment, and basically, when you you shoot a particle through this experiment, and when you are looking at it. When you're looking at the experiment, the particle, when by particle, I mean something like physical. My table's made of atoms, particles. When you look at it, it behaves like a particle. But when you're not looking, it behaves like a wave. And a wave means that it has a probabilistic state where it's maybe here, maybe there. It's not in a definitive location. It's not like a solid thing. So when you're looking, it's like a particle. When you're not looking, it's like a wave the behavior of this particle is changing based on whether or not you are observing it you're not touching it it's whether you are observing it so this is the question what does that mean so is it because we're shining light on it what does it mean to observe does it mean that consciousness the consciousness of the of the observer is what is affecting how this particle or wave is behaving and and there's a big rift in science over this some people say that it's consciousness and some very prominent physicists have said yeah it's consciousness entering the picture and this is Kind of proving that consciousness is steering our physical reality. Like Max Planck said, consciousness is fundamental. There are others that say, well, no, it just has to do with the fact that we're shining a light on it or something. I don't fully understand. And there's, there's all kinds of theories about this, that, there's, um, that it, it, it's not consciousness. I would argue that consciousness is playing a role.
0: And I would agree with you. Uh, Just like they all, I've said, I I do a lot of uh, coaching stuff. And when I'm working with visions and stuff, I always tell people everything that exists in the physical world had to come from non-physical, everything. And it's, I use the observer effect a lot because it's one of those things, how you view things is what it becomes. If you're looking and it's one way, here you go. If you look at another way, here you go. And uh, I don't know if you would agree or not, but it's kind of like, for me, that's a definitive to know that I am the creator of my life, but at the same token, I'm also the producer, I'm the artist, I'm the, the act main actor, I am X, Y, Z, because if I observe, things shift. If I'm not paying attention, it just stays in waveform.
1: Yes, yes. And I want to point to a recent study, which I, I think even many physicists are not aware of, that gets to this exact question of, well, is it consciousness involved or is it just some other effect that has nothing to do with consciousness? And this is Dr. Dean Radin, who I had just mentioned on, he wrote the book Entangled Minds. He said, okay, well, we can test this. Why don't we tell people to put their mental attention to this experiment and we'll see if it behaves more like a a particle when they're mentally focusing on it, meaning that they're not even physically observing it, Mm -hmm. right? So this is an easy way to test if consciousness is, is steering reality and what he finds in his studies. And he's gotten them into two peer reviewed science journals, physics essays and quantum biosciences. He got extremely statistically significant of results that the mind is shifting the particle-like behavior in the study when you're not even physically there to look at it.
0: Love it. That's, that's pretty cool stuff right there. I'm going yeah. to def- I'm gonna definitely check out that one.
1: Yep, um, and, and they're, they're waiting for, for more replications. I think it's very difficult to get physicists to look at this because it's so outlandish. But there, there is one replication that came out. Uh, recently from someone in brazil but he told dr Raiden, and i'll read you a quote from this i love it as he was doing the study this is you know just a physicist and physicists are, are typically not thinking about consciousness as he was replicating the study he said in the last days it has been an intense mixture of feelings i'm oscillating between oh my god and wait something must be wrong
0: <laughs> i love it that is awesome that is awesome. Yeah, because I mean, you know, what is it most back in the day, most physicists believe God didn't exist. And I heard from what I'm heap hearing, they're starting to believe that there is a greater power, there is greater, there is something that's all, all, I don't want to say all knowing, just all great. I guess that's the word I want to use.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, look, when you start bringing consciousness into the picture into physics, it raises all kinds of questions of what is consciousness? What is the, if consciousness is the basis of the physical, what does that mean for all of us? So I think physicists have to ask these questions.
0: I agree. And then some things, I mean, here's some other things I've looked at, because like when I started looking into all this and back, you know, eight, 10 years ago, and I wanted to know, okay, if this is true, I got to see it in other areas. And um, Dr. Masaru Emoto, he did the water experiment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Have you heard that one before? Yep. you right. And so right there, if you look at water and you put love to it, the molecular structure changes into crystallized hexagonal form, which is the highest vibrational frequencies of water in the most um, highest level that it is. Where if you put it hate, all of a sudden, it's very disorganized, chaos, more entropy. And it's one of those things where it's like, there's mind shifting matter right there. You know, that's the consciousness playing an effect. And there's yeah. And there's more studies. I don't know if you heard the it's been around on Facebook a little bit. Now they were looking at a group of people looking at a plant and saying how much they love it and enjoy it and appreciate it. And then they had another side where people were saying, I hate you can't stand you all these things. And I forgot how I don't remember. I didn't get to the length of time they did that for, which I know it had at least beer for a couple of weeks. But, um, the one that said love was vibrant and healthy and just amazing where the other one was dying mm-hmm. with it the way.
1: Yeah, I've heard of studies like this. And I wish there were more scientists that were running like controlled versions of this that are in journals so that people would actually start looking at it a bit more. Uh, but, but on this topic, uh, there, there were lots of studies done at Princeton University by the former dean of engineering on a very similar topic, which is how does the mind affect a physical process? And this, so this is a guy, he was a rocket scientist, very credible, I mean, dean of engineering. And when I was at Princeton, he was there running this lab and I didn't even know about it because it was so controversial. Oh, wow! They, they allowed it to run because of his reputation, but even within uh, Princeton, apparently, there was, there were, people were not super happy about it. Um, he was looking at whether the mind, people's mental intentions could affect a, a machine called a random number generator. Meaning the machine? <laughs> Sorry, okay, go so, ahead. Yes, yes, yes. No, go ahead. Okay, so these are machines that they, they spit out zeros and ones in a completely random fashion. So when you look at the string of zeros and ones that come out, you end up with 50% ones and 50% zeros over the long term. What they've done in these studies is to ask people to put their mind to the machine. And they say, hey, Bob, I want you to try to make the machine produce more ones than zeros without touching it, just like will it mentally to do it. Use your will, and what did this, 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 the experimenters find is that there is a slight effect. So there is a statistical effect that you really you need to do the math to see it, but there's slightly more ones and zeros in a non chance way.
0: I've heard of that before, and it's amazing. Um, it, you know, just uh, what the mind can do. You know, on that level. Um, you know, being in the health field, I look at this, I look at the mind in the sense of how can it influence our life in different ways. And there was like, I mean, I've, there's, there's so many studies out there now about it where like individuals who like test eight weeks and they work out five days a week and they work out their muscles and so forth. And then they're going to evaluate how much strength, how much muscle fibers and strength did they gain in eight weeks. And, you know, they'll have like, let's say 30%. Then they'll have another group do the same thing, but not physically, just mentally, feel the muscles in their mind, feel the activation of the muscles, the fibers and so forth. And the percentage of growth after the eight week process is not 30%, but 22%. Mm-hmm. And then just the power behind that. So just, it's cool. And you know, is it ever going to get to that point as you, you see a movement, a change where they're going to start to be like, Hey, you know what? Consciousness affects physical consciousness is, you know, not in the brain. Are we, are we getting closer to that?
1: Well, that's exactly why I wrote this book because I, I, personally felt in the research that there is more than enough science to suggest that this is not only a real thing, but that we need to be devoting a lot of time as a society to this. Whereas most of mainstream academia is calling this nonsense. And basically, if you want to talk about these things, you can't get tenure. So what scientists are having to do is they wait until they get tenure if they want to Open their mouth about it, but even still, many of them are afraid to talk about it. So your options are basically leave academia altogether and be considered crazy as a scientist, (laughs) right? Or just hide your interest in it. So it's not it's not a a very conducive environment to progress in these areas. So I felt the need to put it all in one place so that someone who's a true scientist and scientists are supposed to be open to evidence, not not it shouldn't be a belief based thing. It should be what do the studies show um, to to say well if if all of these studies have some validity, and to me, the fact, it's, it's hard to reason that all of this stuff, that every single thing is a delusion or a result of bad statistics or something like that. then we've got to look at this. We can't just say, oh, it's a small effect. We don't need to worry. If there's an effect, we have to explain it.
0: It's so funny how you're saying that because in my world, this is medical versus chiropractic. Not saying they're going against each other, but it's one of those things where chiropractors are always, or at least chiropractor like I am in the groups I'm part of, we're always like, there is evidence that proves X, Y, Z. Why are we still doing old school stuff that's more of a belief system than it is real science? And it sounds like you're saying the exact same thing. We're like, why are we still holding on to those things when there's all this research that can prove and get things changing in a different direction? It completely.
1: Yeah, I think the medical field is another one that, that could use these things because if our mind is affecting physical reality, then what's the effect of the mind on the body? Yep. And actually, this, is, this brings me to another chapter in the book that directly relates to medicine. I talk about children who have memories of a previous life Mm -hmm. and this comes from the university of Virginia at the division of perceptual studies at the med school for 50 years. They've looked at over 2,500 cases of children who have memories that are very distinct and they're not from their own life very clearly. And in some cases, the strongest ones, the researchers are able to find exact people that match the description that the child talks about. But to your point about medicine in some of the cases And I think the strongest ones are ones where the children have birthmarks or physical deformities that match how they describe dying in the previous life, where they're so specific. And there's one that I show in the book of a girl whose leg is, it looks like she has constriction rings, like it's been tied in ropes. Like there's an indentation that's so clear, that's not a normal leg. And yet there's no rope. It's just the natural shape of her leg. And in fact, there was a person that died in that manner who was tortured. And the girl describes the torture and it happened to a real person. So if we accept these things as being real, where there is a physical effect to the body that is related to some previous life, so to speak, that means that something that is beyond genetics and beyond environment is playing a role in the body. This is a total revolution in medicine, and the researchers at UVA call it a third factor, whereas conventional medicine say it's all about the genes and it's all about environment.
0: Yep, totally. No, I totally agree. And even on the spiritual world, they always say like in the spiritual realms, they'll talk about, you know, a soul, a consciousness can um, from past life. And I know past doesn't really exist, but just for human sake, we'll just keep it that way. Past life, a linear frame framework. Um, They'll talk about sometimes they'll carry things over into this life um, because they want to. It's a memory thing because I was always curious. I mean, I read up these things and I hear about those stories and I'm just like, okay, why? Why is that happening? What's the purpose behind it? So, um, and then I do a ton of research and get some answers. Um, There was actually someone on the news. I was shocked they put it on the news. There was a boy who was born, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. You may have heard of this. And he was from World War II. And he knew he was from World War II. He said, I was in the war. I was in, he, he had his name figured out and everything. They went to look him up, pulled up a picture of World War II. He was in the Navy, I believe. And he's like, that was my friend who was with me. He died here in this ship on this time, at this date, and everything. And they went to fact check it, and they were he was dead on.
1: Yeah, it might be the one of the stories that I mentioned in the book. On this is this is done at the University of Virginia, a boy who talks about being in World War II and dying in a crash, and he had very specific details. And there was a person that died in this exact manner.
0: Yeah, that's that's that sounds like that's what it was. And um, but yeah, it's it's just crazy. And and for me, I was always like, okay, who can I find resources to? And then maybe it won't be science based. It's going to be more on the spiritual side. But I wanted to understand. How so? I reach out to mediums and people, you know, those types of things to find out. And when they explain it, it's just like oh, that's pretty cool. All right, so it's not in our minds the way the mind works, as you know, it, it likes straight facts, straight one way. This is how it is, Newtonian type physics in a sense. Exactly. And, and 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 they're like, no, it's 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 quantum. It's random.
1: It's it could be this or it could be that. It could be whatever you want it to be. It's it's so variable. This is such an important point. That's one I actually make in the book as well, which is that in fields outside of physics, like medicine, like doctors are not trained in quantum physics. Their worldview is very much a Newtonian one, which is mm-hmm. really good as an approximation of reality, but it's not going to get us to the actual reality.
0: No, not at all. And that's why, like, you know, again, being a chiropractor, the way I practice in my office is all quantum. It's all quantum tone. We call it tonal base. And it's just, um, you know, I never, I always tell patients, I don't know what I'm adjusting until I check and I'm checking to see what your body needs. Half the time when we make the adjustment, I can get linear Newtonian style, but then I'm like, but that's not going to really be the truth. I have no idea why this area needs adjustment over this area. But what I do know is the body, the body is, well, the consciousness, I guess you want to call it, um, or we call it in chiropractic innate intelligence. Um, I'm just connecting with that and it's telling me what I need to do and I'm doing it and we get miraculous results from it. So it's kind of Amazing. cool. Amazing are um, doctors doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a gr- It's growing. It's getting there. Um, but let's keep chatting on this book and everything. Um, I know we talked a little bit about, you know, consciousness surviving. Does consciousness survive after the body dies and so forth? And, um, what, you know, what's, what, what do you, what, uh, what's your, your research on that, your evidence behind it?
1: Mm-hmm. Well I want to go back to the near death experience and some of the okay. studies on that because this this really does get to the question of is is the consciousness existing independently of the body. And some people will will continue to argue well no it's just the brain is is pumping out chemicals or something and it's a hallucination that happens around the time of death and it's just like an evolutionary mechanism that causes this experience. What certain people have done, and very credible people like Dr. Pim Van Lommel, who's a cardiologist, and Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia, is to run studies on people who have cardiac arrest. And these are people who are basically clinically dead. And the studies seek to interview these people who have been resuscitated um, right after they've been resuscitated and are, and are functional again. Whereas many of the older studies, were they're called the retrospective, where you talk to someone who, who recalls their near-death experience 20 years ago, and who knows what kinds of memories come and go between that and if it's been fabricated or they just misremember things. In these studies, they're called prospective. The doctors are there right after the person's resuscitated. So it's like a very clear memory. And there, there, some of these have been reported in, in credible journals, like uh, Dr. Van Lommel's study was published in The Lancet, which is a very credible journal. In his study, 18%, one-eight, of the people that were resuscitated from cardiac arrest reported a near-death experience. I mean, under the conventional view of the brain and consciousness, it should be 0%. You shouldn't be able to have any lucid memories. And yet he's getting 18%. I mean, that is like a world-changing finding. How in the world is that happening? So that's one that's a really important one for your listeners who want to look at this more. Another is this this topic that we kind of touched on. It's it's called formally a veridical out-of-body experience. And veridical meaning that when the person is quote-unquote out of their body, the things that they see in the room are verified as being accurate, like hence the word veridical. There was a, a journal study uh, in Resuscitation Journal by Dr. Sam Parnia, who, did, who looked, at, again, at people in cardiac arrest. And one of the people came back and talked about his near-death experience and was talking about very specific sounds in the room. And the timing of those sounds were during the time of cardiac arrest and during the time there was no brain functioning. So clearly, it is a verified experience that was specific to his experience that happened during the time of no brain functioning, which is getting to this question of life after death, do we need a body to have a consciousness? And what these studies are pointing to is is the notion that no, we don't need a functioning body to have a consciousness, which therefore seems to imply that our consciousness can survive when our body dies.
0: I love it. And it's so true. And and one of the things that you know, uh, for me that made this solidified was the law of, uh, thermodynamics. I think it's the second law from them. The law of thermodynamics that states energy is never created or destroyed. It's always changing form. And, you know, we're in form right now. When we pass, we're going to transform into another form. Um, may spiritual people call it our light body instead of our physical body. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, 10,000 plus near death experience studies that have been out there or document documented, um, there's something to that. And how do you think, you know, people taking that in and starting to see this information, how's it going to change things? How's it going to change their lives? How's it going to change? What is it? Number one, I think public speaking is over death. So number two thing that people fear is death and end of life. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you think? How's that going to change things?
1: Yeah. I mean, if we, I can give you the perspective from my old worldview, which is very much in the conventional or was in the conventional framework, which says that I am conscious solely because of my brain. And therefore when my, bod, my body and my brain die, my consciousness is gone. My memories are gone. My feelings, anything that happened during my life, it's all wiped out. So if you really think about what that means, and I used to think about this very honestly, that there can, no, there can be no real meaning in that life. Because no matter what happens to you, whether it's good or bad during your life, it's wiped out once you're dead. And it's going to happen to everybody who's in a body. So it's... I think it's coming up with meaning under the conventional framework, which science is teaching, implies that there is no meaning in life and that any meaning that you come up with is just a rationalization. So that's kind of where I was because I thought that's what science said. And here we have the, the potential notion that consciousness is surviving when the body dies. So just that alone is a, that can really rock somebody because wait a second, wait, wait, um, maybe I don't die when my body dies. So what happens to me after I die? And wait, is, am I accountable for things that happen in my life? Like in the life review, that actually (laughs) puts some pressure on people.
0: (laughs) Yep, it does. I love that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, I I mean, I grew up with a family member who said the same thing, not with like saying, oh, well, my mind, they just go, when I'm dead, everything's gone, Mm -hmm. blackout, no more, this is it. And uh, so since you've shifted your gears with this in a different perspective, how much has this changed your life?
1: So drastically. So, so drastically. I mean, (sighs) it it just shifts the, it really is a shift of identity at the core, and everything else is an offshoot of that. If you, if you buy into the, it's called the materialist view of reality that matter creates consciousness, then our identity is our body. We are a body that has a consciousness for a limited amount of time, and I'm fundamentally separate from everybody, even though we have similar genetics because we're in the same species. I am fundamentally separate, and I have a finite existence. I'm a body that has a consciousness. This alternative reality says, no, I am a consciousness first and foremost, that is experiencing this physical world through a body and at the level of consciousness, I'm actually connected to everybody. Love it. Totally different.
0: Massively. And so then what's, what's the, so then why, why does consciousness come into the experience? I wouldn't just say human, but just the physical world in general.
1: Hmm. Yeah, this is a big question. And I think the best I can do is, is come up with an inference and, I look at this all the time and you have to look at a lot of like anecdotal accounts and psychics and people with near-death experiences. But I think the life review again is an important one because what people report in that, like this notion that somebody is switching perspectives from their perspective of some past event to being in, like in the body of somebody else and experiencing it through them. It really suggests that it's the same consciousness that's underlying everything that just happens to be able to switch lenses in that dimension. And what that suggests to me is that we need to take those events very seriously So the life review seems to imply that the the bodily experience is about learning and growing and evolving the underlying consciousness through our own individual experiences, but also throughout the collective, because we're all part of the same consciousness.
0: Gotcha. And that comes right back again to the unified field, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I had a mentor one time tell me, a spiritual mentor who was talking about how uh, and it just lines with what you're saying, that all our experiences that what we have get shared upon. So it's shared to the earth as consciousness. It's shared to the universe as consciousness. And it just keeps going up the ladder until whatever you want to call the main supreme being that all that is or the uh, God for people relate to that. Although there's a lot of religious connotation to that mm-hmm. um, to that factor. And that's kind of is that kind of what you're, you've kind of you see it as in that way, too?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That there's one underlying basis of all reality. It's not a physical tangible thing and it is the core of our own identity. So our our identity as consciousness is this kind of unchanging awareness that is experiencing this physical life through a multitude of bodies or or whatever in the physical, but it is not really, it's it's untouched by the physical because it is just the witness of everything. And that is the core of identity and the core of physical reality as I I I think that's the most likely picture.
0: I love it. And so then what is the purpose of consciousness? I know this is even a deeper question.
1: (laughs) No, no, I think that's good. These are important. Yeah. I think we start to get into areas that transcend the linear human mind. So I want to preface with that. Like we're trying to come up with answers through this body that has just inherent limitations. So for example, the, the concept of infinity, it's something that in math we accept as a being real thing, but I mean, we can't understand infinity. We can't actually grasp what that means. So I think that's something we're dealing with here is what is the meaning of life? Why does consciousness exist? And what, what, why is it even trying to learn? I'll give you the answer that I've kind of come to through my research, just from looking at a lot of different things and trying to explain it through a human mind to the extent it's even possible. <laughs> okay, and, and I, I, I would preface it by saying that whatever answer I give is is not, it, the answer ultimately is probably something that is we can never comprehend. Yep. But um, it seems like, Um, consciousness simply is beyond all space and time. So there's no beginning and end to consciousness. And people often ask me, and I address this in the book, what created consciousness? The the notion of creation implies that time is linear in the first place, that there was a time before consciousness and we went from past to present to future. I think we are all, I think linear time is just a, a way we perceive the world. I think consciousness just is beyond all space and time. And a property of consciousness, and I don't, can't really explain why, seems to be that it seeks to evolve. And this physical universe is a means of evolution of consciousness where we almost, I mean, the best way that I can even think about this is to think about our memory, because it really gets back to memory and amnesia. If this is true, what you and I are talking about, it implies that at our level of consciousness, because that's what we are, we already know these things. And yet we don't. We've somehow forgotten. So what is the role of memory? And we have to, then you start thinking about, wait a second can I really trust my memory? I don't remember what happened to me when I was an infant. I mean, if you ask me what happened on this exact day, three years ago, I couldn't tell you exactly what I was doing. I can't tell you what happened in every one of my dreams. And yet during all of these periods, I was alive. There was an awareness that was there and yet I can't recall it. So you start to have to ask questions of, is there some inherent amnesia that's included in the body that does not allow us to remember certain things unless you're in, in altered states so maybe there is something to this idea that consciousness is, is simply evolving itself. And through these physical experiences, we're having a learning. And we're learning because we can't necessarily remember all of these things.
0: I love it. That's pretty, it's, it's right up my alley. I mean, it's, uh, you know, as uh, uh, have you ever read the book, um, uh, Conversations with God by uh, Donald Neil Walsh or Neil Donald Walsh?
1: I'm, I'm, very, I'm familiar with his work and my agent represents him as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with it.
0: Yeah, I have. That is a book that I spent about five years of researching all this different stuff. And then when I, I kept being told, read his book, read his book, read his book, finally said, I'm going to read Conversations with God. And it summed up everything. It mm-hmm. just put it all together. One of the things you're talking about is like, well, how were we created? And I love how you said, well, if we were created, that's linear, which I mm-hmm. love that. Uh, the only notion I ever learned was is that that made sense to me. It was just instantaneous because there's no time.
1: Yes. Yes. So I love this because if we start talking about the notion that consciousness creates matter, which is somehow, sometimes how people interpret what I'm talking about. And, and I sometimes use that because it's, it's easier for people to understand, but to say that consciousness creates matter is implying linear time also. Yep. Like I think what you say, it's almost an instantaneous, simultaneous thing that we can't grasp with our mind.
0: There's a great blog out that I started following years ago. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard
1: of it called erichanneling.com. I'm not familiar with that one, but I'm familiar with a lot of channels and I've read channeled texts. Yeah, this this blog is uh,
0: mind-blowing because the original intent of it was, uh, and I'll be short with this, mother who comes from an atheist family and she's atheist and so is her husband. Um, the son ended up committing suicide and his name was Eric. And so long story short, she's like, there's no way there's an end to my son's life. There's no way he's gone forever. I just can't believe it. And so long story short, she researched mediums until all of a sudden she found the good one. And all again, getting information that no one would ever know. I mean, conversations that were like private that no one would ever know. And that's kind of where it evolved from. But now it gets into a lot of the... Uh, um, uh, Everything of universal universe, God, past people's lives. They do a lot of uh, interviews with people who have passed on and hearing what their purpose was and why they came here and what they came to learn. Because, you know, I, in my spiritual training, it's all about Earth is just one big university. It's a, a massive uh, a conscious uh, university, which helps accelerate us in the learning process. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, but one of the things he talks about, and he said this so many times, is that everything's instantaneous. He goes, humans can't comprehend that because he goes, everything's happening at once. He goes, when you cross over the veil and you come, back on, you come back home, he's like, well, you're not really going anywhere. It's a state of being. But he's like, one of the things is you get overwhelmed by all the lives you're living all at the same time, interconnectedly, mm-hmm. which I've tried to figure that out and I still can't.
1: <laughs> right. And be, look, if, if we did remember all that, or if we did have that experience, maybe it would be too overwhelming. And you wouldn't be able to have this kind of the seeming linear experience. Totally. Have you ever played like RPG games?
0: Uh, a long games? time ago. Long, right long time ago. Back in the day, right? And so you get to create this player and all that good stuff. And he goes, that's basically that was my understanding. I was in a meditation one time and it just came through to me like this is how our lives are. You chose this character in this life, at this time, at this place. Here's the lessons you wanna learn. And that's it. You're gonna forget everything of who you are so that you can really embrace this experience and you get to keep some consciousness. Like, so like they say, you can't put a hundred percent of your spirit or soul into a life because, well, obviously our body's nervous system can't handle that much vibration frequency, but he would be like, you take some of it with you so that it helps in the experience, but you'll never have a hundred percent of it so that you can mm-hmm. gain and grow as much as
1: possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's consistent with what I've seen in a lot of different writings and it's the reason I decided to write the book about the brain and consciousness is that these ideas that you and I are talking about I think are really important. But if you think that the brain produces consciousness, they are totally impossible. They're not yeah. even worth talking about. They're so outlandish. But the minute we think of consciousness as being not tied to the body, then all of these things are not only possible, but they're very reasonable. Yeah, it
0: just it just changes everything. It changes the whole ballgame. Yeah basically. Yep. And, um, I love it. This is, this is awesome stuff. I, I do want to just shift gears a little here and tie into a couple other things. Um, uh, before we wrap this all up and all this good stuff, but you know, we, we you talked about a lot of uh, in your stuff about like artificial intelligence and science, and we got a little bit into the medicine and stuff. And, uh, what's the implications for the science, uh, you know, the medicine our AI and, you know, things on what Elon Musk is up to with Neuralink and all that.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll start with science in general. And like our equations in science right now are, are not considering consciousness for the most part. Consciousness is equals zero. C equals zero in all of our equations. We don't think that our consciousness is having any effect on the physical world by conventional means. And here you and I are talking about the notion that not only is consciousness important, but it's the basis of all physical reality. So I think it just is gonna revolutionize our science and that will ripple into technology and medicine. But uh, getting into those specific areas, let's start with artificial intelligence. This is a very hot topic, and people <laughs> like you know Elon Musk, and are, they're talking about how AI could take over the world. And there's a show called Westworld that's very popular, which has artificial intelligence machines that all of a sudden just become conscious one day. They reach a level of complexity where they develop memories, and then they have feelings and decide they kind of want to take over. I actually recently wrote an article on Thrive Global, which is Ariana Huffington's new media platform on this topic of Westworld and, and how Westworld kind of misses it on consciousness. What is implied by many of the things that people talk about in the realm of AI is, well, the, since the brain's just a computer that produces our consciousness, once we can replicate that complex brain in another machine, it will become conscious. Consciousness will be, will be spawned out of that machine. We just need to figure out how it can become complex enough. And that's what's implied by Westworld, is that these are machines that become complex enough to the point where they develop a memory and feelings, and then they become super dangerous. So what I would question is, is that a real thing? Can we create consciousness from artificial intelligence? Can we create consciousness from matter? And this is the, what we've talked about, is I would argue, no, we're not going to create new consciousness from it. We could make a machine that is programmed algorithmically to do things that we don't like. That could harm people. But is that machine on its own going to have a sentience? Will it it have the awareness that you and I both have? I would argue that it will not be created from new physical matter. And there are some very credible people like the inventor of the microprocessor, Federico Fagin. This is a super credible guy in the area of of machine learning. And he's saying the same thing, which is that consciousness is primary. And look, if we're worried about AI, let's worry about the programmers of AI, not the machines themselves.
0: (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And it's like, you know, cause I mean, there's, yeah, as you already know, there's, you know, DNA programming. Could we create instead set of consciousness or a soul taking over that? Uh, which I, I totally agree with you. I don't think that'll ever happen. I have programmers, friends, um, patients who are programmers and they're like, it just takes a little bit until they become aware. Then all of a sudden they'll take over everything. And I'm just like, eh, I'm more worried about who's writing the programs and the code and all that stuff than anything else. Um, but can it be artificial consciousness where, they with the dna programming and they're learning on their own and all that stuff could that possibly uh shift that way or no completely not at all
1: Uh, well this gets to your earlier question of what's the interaction point between consciousness and our body and our body i mean we are conscious beings at least i can prove that i'm conscious and that's i guess the only thing i can technically prove and i have a physical body that i experience so how is it that that this body is interacting with the consciousness that i have is it possible to create some form of biology that can also do that that can also pick up consciousness? Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Can we artificially create that? I think until we understand how the brain is related to our consciousness, how it's receiving it, so to speak, or or what the, what the actual uh, touch point is, I don't think we can answer that.
0: Gotcha. I, I agree. It's just one of those things that come to my mind at times. I'm always like, Hmm, I wonder, and then what's up with uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink startup? What's all that about? I don't even know about this.
1: He's, he's kind of been quiet about it. And that's probably why you haven't heard about it. And yeah. a lot of people I talk to, they, they you know, there there was an article on uh, Tim Urban's blog, Wait But Why, I think it's what it's called, where he talked about Elon Musk's startup. And he, it's called a wizard hat for the brain, where basically he's trying to optimize brain functioning using some kind of machinery. And what I gathered from the bits and pieces that are out there is that Elon Musk is taking a very conventional view of the brain, or maybe just as scientists are, which is to say, how do we optimize our, our own consciousness? but through the materialist lens, viewing the brain as the producer of our consciousness. And the way I look at it is, well, yeah, maybe there are tons of ways we can optimize our performance, but maybe we can optimize our like psychic performance if we view the brain as being this antenna or filter of consciousness. So I think that startups like Neuralink, and others that people are working on, if they recontextualize the role of the brain, then maybe we can do a whole host of other things that people aren't even looking at.
0: That sounds pretty cool. I think that might, uh, that might be interesting in many ways.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: We'll see how that goes. Elon Musk is an interesting dude. I'm a big fan of him um, just because, you know, a lot of people like to bash him, especially where he is right now. And he's just like, I don't care. I got a long-term vision. I'm doing what I want to do.
1: Total visionary. Yeah. And, and that's why I mentioned his startup in the book is that he's such a smart guy that if, if I don't know how he's viewing the brain, but my, I'm just I'm glimpsing that it's probably from the conventional view that the brain's the producer of consciousness. If he shifted that perspective with his brilliant mind, what else could he help us produce? So true. yeah, And it's kind of cool. I think we're in a very cool era of time
0: where, um, you know, they said uh, it's been told like, you know, the technology has sped things up. And once we understand consciousness to a whole degree, we'll be growing and expanding so fast. It's going to be unbelievable.
1: I agree. I think this is the this is the next critical scientific human revolution. I mean, the last one that we saw on this scale, which I don't even think is as big is the Copernican revolution, where we realized that the Earth was not at the center of the solar system. And Galileo was convicted of heresy for this. And he had his evidence in his telescope. And yet the clergymen didn't want to look in the telescope to see the evidence to change their worldview. And I think we have a similar situation right now. There's tons of evidence that I chronicle in my book. And there's lots of other stuff out there, which is suggesting we have to look at life in a new way. And until our mainstream community looks in the telescope, so to speak, I think it's going to be difficult to get there
0: totally agree with you on that. Um, a couple more questions I got, you know, one of the things you mentioned here well, talking about, like looking at, I kind of mentioned this a little bit with the water experiment, but what's the implications, um, things like love, beauty, happiness, world peace. Um, just to dive in a few of those. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, let's say, let's start with love and beauty because those are, those are issues that I remember back when I studied psychology in college, that was technically my major, even though I, I kind of combined it with economics and looking at behavioral economics is like, what's the evolutionary explanation for love psychologically? Lust makes a lot of sense because that enables people to reproduce. But why is love necessary? And I always remember that there was there were theories that like, well, if you love each other, then you treat each other better, and it gives the gene pool, a better chance of survival. And there were like lots of theories about it, but it was always unclear as to whether it was an exact relationship. If it was just purely based on genetic evolution What this theory of consciousness is suggesting is that maybe there's another view on love, which is that love is a property of the underlying consciousness that we all are. And that's why people, when they get out of their brain state, when they're in a near-death experience or on the psychedelic, when they unlock the filter, they experience that which is already there and is just typically filtered out. So maybe that love is, is part of that property of consciousness, part of the property of our identity. So when we think about the love between two people, maybe that is, is the recognition of our shared being as the same consciousness, but in another person.
0: Pretty cool. Like just, um, um, where we create, we were created from love as some people say. Right. And it, Right.
1: The, yeah. Yeah. And that that's an idea that I like would have rolled my eyes at a few years ago, but <laughs> I, I completely agree with you now. I think that's exactly right from this other lens.
0: Yeah. And it, when you look at it from that perspective, cause you know, it's been told many times, like, you know, God is love and love is God. And, and you know, and, and all the biblical texts that talk about, you know, we're the made like image of God. So, then I'm like, well, we're made out of love and we're love itself. And love is our natural form. And Mm -hmm. so I love the way you put it that way in that perspective.
1: Yep. Yep. And that leads to beauty, which I think is an even more difficult one for, um, for traditional evolutionary explanations. Why is it beautiful to see a sunset? Like, why do we care so much? Why is a painting beautiful? If you look at consciousness from the lens that we're talking about, maybe, whereas love is the recognition of our shared being in another person, beauty is the recognition of of consciousness our shared being with anything physical but in a non-sentient thing and we call that beauty
0: cool way of looking at it i like that Mm -hmm. um happiness you know is that again what's your implications on that like because
1: um we're in a very depressed society right now yeah i'm sure you see it all the time in your practice that yeah i think there's a lot of Mental illness, and it, it gets to the it, get, it usually comes down to happiness. Is that people are seeking happiness, where the converse is that they are trying to reduce suffering. I think they're very much the same thing. Couldn't agree with you more. That's
0: kind of the way I look at it too. Because and also I always tell people happiness is just that a uh, a viewpoint of external events. It's you, it's not something from internal. Like wow, I got a I had money that came in that I didn't expect to happen. Ooh, I'm feeling good today. Or I know there's going to be a lot of people here in Chicago complaining because today's the first day of snowfall so there's going to be a lot of complaints going on. It's a horrible day because mm-hmm. of that. And and that's really but I like how you said um suffering, uh, reducing suffering. And right. that and I think that is a huge huge component of people looking at it from that perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah. And well, I mean it gets the question of well what is how do we achieve happiness then? And I, I kind of end up in a position that I think you were just heading pointing towards which is that we tend in our society to look externally for things to find happiness of uh, the next job, the next relationship, the next house or car or something material, but that is always an externalization of things. And yet well, what you and I are describing is the notion that everything is just one consciousness and there's nothing outside of that consciousness. So to seek happiness outside of the self is almost trying to seek happiness in an illusion. And I think that's why, uh, it's in, soci- in psychology. It's called the hedonic treadmill, where you get something and you're happy for a split second, but then you're back on the treadmill and you're kind of back to neutral. Like those, those external things don't get you to the happy place because happiness, I would argue, is something that comes fully internally.
0: I love that. And you're making up some great points where um, it's kind of a thing, like we've been indoctrined to let our external world dictate our internal like and and it starts as when we're children you know we're a good boy are we a bad boy are we when we go to school the whole school system is based on that how good am i well i'm only good based if i got a's in class if i don't get a's i'm not that good and and it's that whole indoctrination of doing that and conditioning all along the way so by the time Um, you know, what is it? Seven years old is when the mind starts to shift gears and start going more logical. Uh, the blood brain barrier thickens up. So basically we're all who we are. Well, we can change this though, but who we are, our mind processes and how the brain sees the world is seven years old up to there. And it's one of those things where I think where we're shifting towards it, where you and I've been talking about is the shift is now going to start looking at, okay, let's look internal. And what do we have to do there? And it just leads to everything we're talking about consciousness in general, change your consciousness. And all of a sudden uh, it shifts your entire world in a whole different realm.
1: It completely does. It completely does. So it might be that this underlying cause of a lot of the angst that we see in the world today, whether it manifests as anxiety or depression or other things comes from this inability to find happiness in the external world. And people just don't know what to do because there's been this, there's an underlying belief that the material world, there's something outside of us and it's not satisfying people.
0: No. And just think about this way too. Our detention span is down to, I think, eight seconds. From last time cool. I heard, which is crazy. Think about that for a second. You know, like, and you were just talking about the, what is the hedonic treadmill? I'm going to definitely, yes. I love that. Um, just think about it. You're happy for eight seconds and then all of a sudden you go back and you're right. And it, it's just this thing where uh, we're not holding on grass of things in, in my opinion. Uh Yes,
1: you're bringing me to an analogy that I I really like when thinking about this is like sometimes when when you I mean i'm thinking about I I was a college athlete if you win a tennis match you're really happy about it for a few minutes and then you worry about the next match but there is that period of time when you get the thing that you want and you're happy it does happen but you end up still on the treadmill so if you think about happiness as being our actual state of being as consciousness that is just clouded out it's sort of like our happiness is the sun that's always there and we have these clouds that are our thoughts or our perceptions and our expectations and when we achieve the thing we want maybe it's a temporary temporary removal of some of the clouds so we experience the happiness or the sun that was always there the whole time and we falsely attribute the event as the thing that caused the happiness when all the event did was actually just temporarily remove the block to happiness
0: so true. I love it, man. Really, really good stuff here. Uh, before we wrap up here, you just launched a podcast. What's it all about? I have not launched
1: it yet. But oh, you're I about will, to
0: launch a podcast then. I
1: will be. <laughs> yeah, I don't have the exact date yet. But uh, my website, which is just my name, Mark Gober, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com, will be announcing that when it comes out in the next few months in social media. But the, the general gist of the podcast is that I interview many of the scientists that I talk about in my book and people who've had near death experiences. So it's, if, if my book is just the quotations of these people, the podcast is hearing firsthand how these people have had experiences and how they've run studies and what they've gone through.
0: I can't wait to listen to it, man. It's going to be that's uh, right up my alley. I'm all about that. Um, so how do you know, awesome stuff here. And, and how can people connect? what's the book, where can they get the book?
1: The book is available on my website, but also Amazon, Barnes Noble, and Noble, and many bookstores. So just typical places you should be able to find it. It's called An End to Upside-Down Thinking, and the subtitle is Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life.
0: Love it. I'm definitely going to pick up a copy and read that. that uh, uh, you're speaking my language. Uh, <laughs> I, w- I don't want to say love language. That's something totally different, but I'll just say uh, conscious language <laughs> <You got it. laughs> for that matter. Um, <laughs> How can people connect with you uh, besides uh, website, social media links, anything like that?
1: Um, I would say social media is a good way. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, but also my website has a contact page. And if if people want to send personal messages, I I will personally respond to them. So you can leave a note there.
0: Awesome. Well, Mark, I I appreciate having you on. This was... uh... This was, I, I know it's going to be very rewarding for my listeners, but it was very rewarding for myself. A fresh breath air here just to chat some of the science behind all this and get diving in deep. So I'll definitely have you on again in the near future to dive in deeper um, with some things here, but I appreciate you, brother.
1: Yeah, no, that was fun. And thank you. And thanks for all that you're doing. And it's, it's wonderful for me to talk to somebody who's so into this realm and practicing it on a day-to-day basis.
0: Uh no, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. So uh, until next time, man, just keep rocking and rolling. Okay, you too. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic21. Follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover your infinite potential.